Hello you, tuning in to Psychomedy. It's Rafaela here from ThreadUp. ThreadUp brings exciting new changes to its services in direct response to what we learned while supporting comedians and creatives through the crisis with their mental health and including those who lost their income. Check it out at threadup.co.uk and get in touch to arrange your therapy that supports creativity. Welcome to Psychology. I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years and a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage alongside being a stand-up comedian for the last 10 years has led me here today discussing the psychology of comedy with today's very special guest, the absolutely incredible, the iconic Steve Nallen. Steve. Hello. Yes, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So, Steve, such a huge thrill to have you on Psychomedy. You're joining me on Zoom, unfortunately, from your home in North London. It's been so lovely this week watching the old clips um, and the new clips of Spitting Image. Uh, you on the new series and your more recent stand-up stuff as Thatcher on YouTube. I've uh, just loved it. Um, you, you mentioned in your... One of the things you mentioned in your comedy lectures that you do for university that you can also get on YouTube is that comedians don't often laugh at other comedians and I guess that's the case that we've heard it all before but I think the exception to that is when something's really funny I probably laugh more than the rest of the audience and that was the case with your stand-up oh <laughs> wow as, thank you as, oh it was brilliant <laughs> as, as as Thatcher and in, uh, in Simon Happily's club oh it? yeah From, the comedy camp that was from great. 2014 such there was such energy in that in that room part of uh, the psychology of comedy is the psychology of laughter and they're sort of connected but but you need the you, you know you know yourself you need the right room you need the right people you need the right atmosphere you need the right compare to introduce you to get it to get the rhythms right and yeah. and when you get a room like that that's so good uh, and simon brilliant at you know doing the intros and stuff uh, mm. the energy is already is already pitched so high that yeah. you just sort of surf on top of it as a as a comedian it's just wonderful yeah the energy in that room in the in the 2014 clip it was just i just loved loved watching it both from a perspective as it's really funny but it's also i don't know there seemed to be a sense of in the room i don't know whether you get this or you get this when you're performing sometimes of your body of work going back to the 80s the absolute love for you the affection and you almost got a sense of people remembering all of your work, you know, in that one moment, um, just recognising how great it was, you know? Well, also that one moment was about a week after Mrs Thatcher died. Yeah. So yeah. it had a real, you know, she'd been in the news a lot. And I'd agreed with Simon years before. I, he said to me, look, when, when she goes, will you come and do comedy <laughs> camp? Mm. Um, and I said, yes, of course I would. Um, so then I arranged to get it filmed because I thought it would be fun. And um, yeah, it's one of the, one of my most popular videos on on YouTube. So, but you see, 
again, it, 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 it wasn't a difficult night because the country had been thinking about Thatcher. We'd, I, I think we just had a funeral um, mm. and stuff. So it was just the right time to do it. Um, and the, the timing was right in every sense, I think. I get a sense that the timing is always going to be right for... <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> I, I, listen, I've died on my arse so many times. <laughs> Surely my, not. Oh, please. <laughs> I, I've been, you know, it's just, it's a strange thing um, because, you know, back in, when I was doing the Northern Clubs um, back in the 70s, you could do the same act in one club and in the same night do that same act in a different club and get just such a completely different response. And that, of course, happens in stand-up when, you know, you, you, you can open in one venue and close in another and just a completely different atmosphere. And therefore, I think comedians start to attune themselves to, you know, as soon as they go into the room, as soon as they sense the audience, as soon as they sense the atmosphere, uh, the time of night, it is all part of what a comedian has to intuitively learn to some degree um mm. and, and then put it into practice and the more you perform the more match fit you are as a performer the better that intuition uh comes you know um mm. and i learned from a very early age when i started performing when i was about 15 or 16 this the same joke doesn't necessarily get the same reaction every single night and and, and it's a strange thing to say now but uh, I'm glad I learned that lesson very early. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was very early for you, wasn't it? I mean, it's probably not very early being a comedian now at 16 or 18. Probably if you're not a comedian by 13 now, it's too late. But uh, yeah, I was I was hearing you on an, on another podcast talking about yeah, doing those northern clubs at what 16, 17, 18, and yeah. Um, yeah, that was very early. And also talking about in your childhood as being someone that wanted to. And this is probably common in a lot of. Uh, it's definitely common in a lot of performers that they want to perform, but they're scared of performing uh but they there's something inside of them they have to get it out and how yeah how young to do it in those clubs at 16 that was uh, i think you, you, you that, that that strange mixture of of needing to perform wanting to perform and yet being terrified of doing it at the same time mm. i've i've rarely come across uh comedians that don't have that in their psychology mm. um and it's and on top of it reveals a sort of vulnerability and the sense which so many comedians have including myself that actually you're not very good you know you want to do it and you're frightened and actually you're not very good at it and you're going to be found out um mm. and no matter how good you are and i've worked with so many you know good comics and then you see them come off stage you know they're very confident on stage and they come off stage and they're a nervous wreck i was mm. like okay did, did i do okay you know mm. i worked with barry humphreys um on on a show mm. when he was doing day medna and uh, the rule with barry was that essentially he stayed as uh, day medna once he had the wig on um but the show didn't go well uh, it was a tv show and it didn't go well and barry ran up to me backstage and I'd never seen anybody really you know him so nervous and he grabbed me by the arm he said Steve can we can, can we edit this can we edit it and I thought my god you're you know you're one of the 
big names in, in comedy, big names in show business, and you're coming up to me. I was a bit of a guest on the show, and mm. you're asking me whether we can edit it. And, and he knew that it wasn't working. Um, and it was, it, it was a real lesson to me to see somebody as good as that having that vulnerability. Whoever you are, you're going to, uh, you're going to suffer from these periods of, um, of doubts. And uh, yeah, I guess comedians more than anyone. I mean, has, has that increased or changed for you at all over the years and maybe over the last year when all of us haven't been able to perform as we were or doing what we were doing? I think over the years, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 60th year. So uh, um, I, my need to perform is less than it used to be. I just don't have that drive to do it. Um, and I don't quite enjoy it as much as I used to. I did a show last year and it was a, it was a comedy show and, and uh, I won't go into the details of it, but it was one of those nights that just worked. Everybody was on top form. Um, they were laughing before we all got on stage because I did a little voiceover and it was just a night where you, it was wonderful. And one of the actors sort of rang me the next day and said, oh, I couldn't get to sleep. I couldn't get to sleep. It was so great. And I could. I came home, I went to bed and never thought about it. <laughs> um, so that special buzz, I think, has, has, uh, has gone a little bit for me. Um, mm. But um, I still want to perform. Um, but to, to answer your question, really, you, you know, when you've been around a long time, you, you know you can do it. But at the same time, there's an old adage that you're only as good as your last show. Mm. You know, no matter how, if you, even if you've been doing it for uh, 40 years, 45 years now in my case, um, you're still only as good as your last show. And, and there's some truth in that, but, you, you know, it, it's, it's fair also to remember the, you know, the past as well. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, what I was talking about from that clip from, yeah, 2014 that... Uh, the real comedy savvy audiences remember the past and you know that that, that energy <laughs> well, that's is great, great. I mean, you don't get that from everyone do you there's a certain uh, it, i was thinking about this because um you know so much of the psychology of laughter comes from surprise and it's one of the reasons why comedians don't laugh because uh, uh, other people jokes because as they are listening to the joke or the routine they are working out why it's going to work, what the punchline is going to be. And they can't laugh because there's no surprise because they've already worked. I do this all the time when I watch comedians. Oh, they're doing that. That's the technique they're using. They're using a reversal. They're going to take a, a literal expression, make it real. I, in my head, I've worked out what they're going to do. And it's funny, but it's, it, you need surprise to make you laugh. Yeah. In a way, what I do, or, or I have done, particularly with the Thatcher stuff, is um, the, the audience have a, a, a different sort of laughter because it's a, a fulfilment of expectation. You're waiting for it. It's like when you watch an old comedy program, um, The Two Ronnies or Victoria Wood or Dad's Army even. You've seen them before. And, and you're waiting for that moment <laughs> of expectation. Uh, so it's a, it, it doesn't depend on surprise. It almost depends on the opposite of, of, of fulfillment of expectation, which is, a, which is an interesting idea, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I, I tend to go for fulfillment of expectations. Often when I'm looking for a comedy to cheer me up, I go for, I go for the same thing. I go for the extras Christmas special. I know it, I could say it word for word. And I used to do this with Blackadder back in the day. And 
you know, you'd go for something that is, uh, you know, but you just laugh just as hard and you, you love it just as much. It's, um, yeah, it's interesting. So before we um, maybe talk about psychology a little bit more, um, I couldn't help but be reminiscing, obviously, when I was looking at Spitting Image from the 80s and 90s. And I had Simon Day on the podcast um, mm. two weeks ago from the Fast Show. And we talked about the affection that I and he, and I'm sure you have for comedy of the, I mean, maybe you don't, maybe, maybe you hated it all, but um, I have certainly a huge comedy uh, affection from the 80s and 90s. And maybe it was because I was a kid, um, but I think there's something to say about how comedies change and I'd, I'd be interested in your perspective on that you know maybe it was because there were less channels and we all had the same collective experience but I think the key for me was that seemingly coming out of the 70s and talking about different things that it seemed to be so exciting it seemed to be so many risks were being taken it seemed to be so raw there was live comedy with um, Saturday Night Live and uh, that you that you just don't get anymore. Do you have any thoughts on that in terms of how it's changed, particularly because Spitting Image has now come back and they've tried to recreate the magic of the first time around? Spitting Image was a traditional sketch show in many ways. Mm. And our producer, John Lloyd, uh, you know, has produced Not The Nine O'Clock News and Not The Nine O'Clock News, along with other sketch shows, used to always end in a song. That was the great variety tradition. You do your sketch, and the true Ronnies did that. That you know, that yeah. was a great tradition. And Spitting Image did that, and Spitting Image are now doing this the same thing again, with ending with a song. So you've got these sort of great traditions that 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 continue. Mm. Um, but if, you know, going back to the the two Ronnies, you know, he used they used to dress up and, and as women often at the end of the show and do a pastiche song. Um, and, and John Lloyd used to, to, to some degree, not parody that, but take that tradition famously with the Not the Nine O'Clock News song, um, uh, the song that kind of lingers. And, uh, and I remember being, uh, I think must have been at sixth form, and we all came in the next day and said, did you hear that song last night? The song that kind of lingers. And some people had worked, I went to a, a Jesuit school, so we did Latin. And, you know, people had worked out what the song was actually about. Uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's and, and that was, but that was dangerous. And, that, and every generation will find that, you know, my uncle's generation, um, uh, I mentioned my uncle because he was a big fan of The Goon Show. And they found that excitement in The Goons in, 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 the, in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and the 60s was Monty Python, the... the you could sort of miss out the 70s to, to some degree because it was a different sort of comedy. But then mm. you've got the young ones, spitting image, Rick Mail in the New Statesman. Yes, mm. you're right. In the early 80s, there was a huge burst of this new type of, of comedy. And mm. it, it was live and it was exciting and it was young. You know, most of the comedians that appeared on The Comedians, which Johnny Hamp produced from Granada, had been doing the clubs for about 20 or 30 years. You know, they, mm. they knew their trade and, and, and they, were, they were good at what they did. Uh, but they just told jokes. They, there was nothing about themselves that was, was in the comedy. And suddenly in the early 80s, you got this very personal um, perspective coming through, which had never been seen before. Mm. And nowadays, when you know, it's been a while since I went to Edinburgh, but it's not that long ago um, in, in relative terms, you get these confessional shows. You know, you get comedians um, who 
who do a set, an hour set on their alcohol abuse or their drug abuse or their the problems with their wife or daughter or mother or father you get these very and, and so comedy became much more personal and i've mm. always had this I've, I've talked to comedians like you know that i've worked with and i said i've got a major advantage over you psychologically mine is an act none of it is true i say things that i say i say about my auntie doing this none of it is true i made it all up this is my confession to you uh, because i'm not a <laughs> confessional poet uh, i nearly said poet <laughs> um, I'm not a confessional um, comedian. You are a poet, Steve. It's, a, it's an act. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, it's a performance. And actually, when you watch comedians that are putting their life on stage uh, and they're talking about the problems that they've had and they want to make it funny, and if that gets rejected, that's a real rejection. If I get rejected, it doesn't matter because I'm an, a turn, what we used to call a turn. Mm. Uh, but the modern comedians are far more personal and, and, it, and it hurts more for them, I think, to not to have that acceptance through laughter with the audience. Yeah. Yeah. We, it's so interesting. We, talk, we, I mean, we talked about you, you giving lectures in comedy. Is this something that you cover in, in these lectures, how comedy has changed? I mean, I have a... I have a near, near, nearly 13-year-old boy, so I see how he is with his friends and what they watch. And when I was 13, I was so excited about Spitting Image or whatever it was, Blackadder or then Bottom. And that was a thing I was excited about, seeing that half an hour special uh, moment of the week. And what the kids are into now is, I'm sounding very old here, of course, but they're into a two-minute clip of somebody throwing a bottle well the media is changing that's one of the, the, the one of the challenges for uh, the the revamp for spitting image mm. is is producing satire and comedy when you could go on youtube or twitter yeah. and somebody's done it you know very very quickly on their iphone or whatever i feel like we're giving up on tv do we do we just give up on tv a lot a lot of comedians friends of mine just say why are you still interested in tv tv's dead is it dead? Are we flogging a dead horse? Should we just give up on TV? You know, I'd like to think we wouldn't give up on TV because it's mm. it's it's what you talked about earlier. It's the collective. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 the nation together. You know, on Christmas mm. Day, back in the nineteen seventies, um, the nation watched Morecambe and Wise, mm. and you sort of okay. There might have only been five or six people in the house with you, but you knew that next door was watching Morecambe and Wise. The opposite was watching Morecambe and Wise. And if you met them the next day, did you, did you, did you see Shirley Bassey in that, <laughs> sing it with the boots? Oh, it was so funny. And you're sh and remembering, and now this, you think, oh, well, that's, that's okay. But no, it's, it's more important than that. It's part of, you know, laughter is part of the bonding process of human beings. Mm. And if you say, well, no, I didn't see it, then you're excluded from that. You know, and, and it's a way also of, 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 you know, discovering whether or not you're going to get on with somebody. Because if somebody <laughs> said, oh, did you see that sketch with Shirley Bassey on the Christmas special? Yes. It wasn't at all funny, was it? And you think, well, yeah, it was. It was very funny. It's still funny. And I'll never speak to you again because there's no point because we've got nothing in common. Because if you don't find that funny, then what's the point? You know? Yeah. 
uh, and but that's going slightly ahead of ourselves in the psychology but, but oh no that's you know, that, that is that is part of it it's a, it's a yeah. collective experience it's a shared experience and you, you can tell whether or not um you know somebody's going to get the couples particularly in audiences when you're yeah. a comedian if you if you see one with a sour face and one you know laughing crazily that's not a marriage that's going to last no yeah that was such a great part of the lecture it's a, a lot of this lecture i kind of it was in my head but i hadn't really the thoughts hadn't crystallized in that way before that we make connections through laughing at the same thing and of course you know anyone that's on dating profile they're looking for a sense of humor they're looking for that same sense of humor and how much easier it used to be to have that same sense of humor because there was only a few things to choose from. So are you a two Ronnie's person or, or are you a Blackadder person or whatever it was, you know? And now it's so disparate. It's like, oh, did you see that guy flipping a bottle over his head into a bin? No, because there's a million no, things to no. there's and, a million and, things to choose from. But yeah, and 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 it, it but that's the case with, with sport, with um, political broadcasting, particularly in America with, you know, the, the news channels and so on. That's just the nature of the, the, the media. And you can't, the advantage of the media that as it is now is, is you've got all these platforms and anybody can create content, put it out there and it's great. The other, I mean, the, the other aspect of spitting image coming back and how comedy's changed again, before we maybe move on to uh, back to psychology it's just interesting how it's changed in terms of the risks being taken what we can talk about the great thing about spitting image and you've talked about i think in other podcasts is it was 10 o'clock and it was almost like itv were like let's let's let everyone off the leash for this half an hour that's a brilliant way of describing it because uh, it, it it was perfectly placed at 10 o'clock on a sunday you know you'd had the weekend you then had to face work at eight o'clock nine o'clock the next morning or or go to the dole or whatever you were doing that that morning and it was the final burst of the weekend and we were going to take the piss out of the prime minister out of the pope out of ronald reagan out of whichever celebrity was on you know on television that week um, and it was just going to be a bit of fun and, 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 and just the valve was loosened so the steam could come out uh, and we could all go to bed laughing. Um, yeah. And I think there's a lot of... And, and in those days, because it was at 10 o'clock on a Sunday night and you couldn't watch it on iPlayer or whenever you wanted, again, it was that sense of... Um, national sharing at that specific time mm. um which has gone today because you know yeah. spitting image um is made um up until thursday uh it's then put together in whatever way it's put together and edited and then it's got to be put on the server on friday so that people can start watching it from saturday and of course they can mm. watch it at nine o'clock in the morning 12 whatever time they want to watch it so that that sense of the communal sharing of uh, in terms of time has disappeared yeah yeah so talking about the same sense of humor as well i was heartened to um hear one of your favorite comedians being jerry sadowitz i think we will get on very well in terms of having a <laughs> <laughs> well, we can I, go I, out together, Steve. We, I tell you, well, it's, I, I tell you what, what I find, and I was, I was thinking about this, um, uh, I thought about it a lot. Um, I, I like the, the, 
the totality of what he does, if that doesn't sound too wanky, uh, and the extreme of what he does, and he's right at one end of the spectrum, which is you go at everything. There's, there's no boundaries. And I, my favourite time watching him was in Edinburgh in the festival. And the, 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 every comedian, he only did one show, and every comedian was there <laughs> to celebrate this guy that was going to go far further than any other comedian went. And he was shocking, and he said things that were completely disgusting. And, you, yeah, but you gave him permission to do it, partly because it's the festival, partly because of the audience, and partly because of who he is. I can't do it, you know. Mm. I, 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 I don't have that way of thinking. On the other side, I like the Dad's Army stuff as well, that very gentle, loving uh, fondness. So I, I like the two ends of the spectrum. I'm not very good in the middle. Mm. You know, I'm not very good with, with people who just do puns or, or, or do, you, do you remember Ida Downs and stuff like that? I'm not <laughs> so good on that. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what it is, though, about, about comedy where it's regarded as different to drama or documentaries. I mean, I, I was watching a, a Netflix documentary yesterday called um, Don't Fuck With Cats. You know, it was on everyone's timeline about a year ago and it's so horrible, it's horrific. They show an actual murder, um, you know, well, pieces of an actual murder on a, on a video, pushing the boundaries in these documentaries. And I feel like we've stopped pushing the boundary in comedy many, many years ago. People are so fearful of it and i don't know whether that's an aspect of people are giving up to a certain extent and moving to clips and moving to one minute clips or it's just uh, what i feel about it is that in the in the early 80s you um and i was performing in clubs uh, in the early 80s i mean i turned up at one club i can't remember which one it was but i was playing thatcher and they informed me as i came through the door that i could not be um uh, racist or sexist uh, uh, in anything I said on stage. Hmm. And I said, um, what about irony? Because <laughs> I'm performing as Mrs. Thatcher, who hmm. may have, you know, sexist and racist views. So hmm. where uh, they said, we understand, do what the hell you like, Steve, you know, you're the <laughs> Prime Minister. So um, what I'm saying is that, you know, that the, the the restrictions of what you could say was there in the 80s as well um, mm. uh, because you couldn't do the mother-in-law jokes anymore mm. um, um, that, that and yet you know here's the thing um, mother-in-law jokes what are they really about um, they're actually about mothers you can't very few people tell jokes about their mothers there were various Jewish jokes about Jewish mothers, but, but, but jokes about mothers. So it's a disguise using the mother-in-law as a, as a way of doing it. Because the comedian, if it's a male comedian, has a mother, same as his wife has a mother. And in a way, it's a... Well, so what I'm saying is even mother-in-law jokes have a complex psychology that we don't always appreciate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, let's go back to the let's go back to the the, the lectures, and um, I'll pick out a few things if I may from yeah. from that lecture. There's, there's there's so much in in that. Um, you drop in a phrase at the end of the lecture, and it's so powerful. Um, you you tell me your favourite joke 
I will tell you who you are. I love, <laughs> I love that. You could have heard a pin drop in the room. It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> it's um. It's 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 what happened was when I was doing the clubs. I was a big fan of Ken Dodd. I saw him live, and he's still one of the great comedians I've ever seen on stage. Yeah. And he 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 actually read books on comedy, and I thought, well, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to you know, go to the library. And he had a famous joke, a famous line, because he'd, he'd read Freud. Freud wrote a book called Wit and Its Relationship to the Unconscious. And uh, and Ken, I don't do a very good Ken Dodd impression, but he said, he said yes, I, I read Freud's book on comedy. The problem with, the problem with Freud is he, he never did a second house at the Glasgow Empire, you know, um, which is true. Um, but I went to the library and I said, um, I want some books on comedy. And, and comedy theory and she went away and she said we do have one downstairs I said why is it downstairs she said it's prohibited I said oh can I read it she said I'll go get it and I was 18 so I could I could take it out and it was a, a, a thousand pages of a book called the rationale of the dirty joke by a man called Legman who was a Freudian and basically he'd been collecting jokes for 50 years and he did a Freudian analysis of every single joke he collected. It was in two volumes and wow. it taught me a lot about sex, but it also taught me that, that every single joke is telling a truth in a disguise. And it's, 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 um, uh, it, 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 and it reveals something about you um, mm. when you laugh and that, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned in, um, Freud as well about how much you laugh depends on your own repression. That was really interesting. Well, it's, like, it's, only... Freud's, uh, I mean, Freud's book actually is, is, is pretty boring and he's, it, it's, it's wit in relationship to the unconscious. So actually really he's talking about puns more than comedy. But his mm. general theory is, the, which is true of his general theory, is, is the more suppressed areas of your life oral or whatever anal psychological childhood and all that the more suppressed that is when it's released through laughter the bigger the laughter will be so the louder you laugh the more it reveals about why you're um you know why you're laughing it tells you more about yourself if you want to take notice of it because it doesn't Laughter is such one of the most complicated things and very, very few people actually write about it or think about it. The philosophers didn't, very few philosophers wrote about it. Um, but it's very revealing, I think. Mm. Well, yeah, that's what's so great about this lecture. Just in this one lecture, you go back to the origins of laughter about, um, you know, when we first laughed, it was maybe that we were felt safe and it was, uh, yeah, so, so fascinating. But I mean, the... There's been a there's been a bit about the psychology of laughter that I've seen recently about how much we laugh during the day, which is quite quite interesting. I was talking on the radio about this a couple of weeks ago, and we talked to Neil Malarkey um, about this, who goes out to workplaces and encourages people to laugh more and bond more uh, with yeah. humour, and that we as babies we're laughing maybe a hundred times a day, and as adults we're we're laughing only a couple of times a day. And in these times where mental health is such a crisis for us all, um, it's so important, isn't it? It's so important. So important that everyone gets on YouTube now and sees that clip from you in 2014. Well, I, I, I and, sort of think whatever. that, that I, 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 I heard this talk because um, it, 
it's frightening the, the number of times we laugh goes down over the years um, because it's one of the definitions of depression is not being able to laugh for two weeks so if you go to a doctor and the doctor says when was the last time you laughed and you say you know three weeks ago four weeks ago or i haven't laughed this year that is a true sign of depression um it, it and I, I i never really suffered from depression i've had bad times when things haven't gone well um but uh, uh, i've never stopped laughing um not always at myself because you feel sorry for yourself but um and and yesterday i like many people i switched my phone on when i was in bed and and there was a <laughs> i'm laughing at it. it was it was about it was about donald trump but it wasn't so much about donald trump it was about the fact that uh, Giuliani gave this com conference, um, press conference, at the Four Seasons, which turned out <laughs> to be a landscape gardening company, um, and next door to a sex shop. And you, it was you couldn't make this up, you know. Um, and uh, and it, it, and I think that's where um, I don't laugh so much at at jokes and uh, and stuff but the absurdity of life that that he was you know this press conference about trump in a car park next door to a sex shop uh, in a it, you couldn't it, it was just you couldn't put it in a novel you know and then and then the the landscape gardening company um you know started they they it was not a great joke but it made me laugh in a bizarre way uh they've turn their logo now to lawn and order and um <laughs> you know because good for them it's not a great joke but in the context it's perfect uh, and oh yeah a make uh, make america rake again you know good for them that, that that now that made me laugh because i didn't expect that you know yeah, I, yeah. It's, it's not the great joke it's the context of of the gag uh with you know the whole trump nonsense and so on <laughs> yeah yeah we're gonna we're gonna be laughing less with um joe biden in for the next four years yes uh but we're gonna be laughing with him not at him <laughs> so that's always a good thing yeah yeah there's a there's a i don't know there's a there's a big picture i guess from what we've what we've talked about in terms of this collective experience and um you know us giving up on tv that i think about a lot particularly having kids and uh you know going back to what you were saying about you know depression and people feeling down and not having those experiences i think i just feel a drip drip in society of with the kids watching their phones and we know that's bad for, for their mental health we know it's awful i mean the, the social uh dilemma came out on netflix and summed it up beautifully of how terrible these things are but i think if we give up on comedy if we give up give up on tv comedy then it's a drip drip it is really important that we have these collective experiences it's important for our collective mental health as a nation and as a world i think it's that important and i i know i, I, totally I worry agree with you. i worry for it we, we need to get in touch with the people who run television i mean when i look at the <laughs> television schedules nothing wrong with the bake-offs nothing wrong with the, the apprentice nothing wrong with you know the programs on television in the 70s and, and to some degree the 80s you always had a half hour of comedy on mm. every night um and i recently went to 
um, slightly digressing, but I went to a Royal Television Society meeting, which is about comedy. And there was quite a lot of com uh, comedy writers on the stage, and they were all talking about, um, you know, that their comedy was cutting edge. It was on Channel 4 at 10 o'clock at night, and, and, you know, they were doing things that other people had done. done. And I put my hand up and I said, where's the, where's the tea time comedy for a working class audience that a family can watch? And there was complete silence. I said, it doesn't exist anymore. You know, it did in the 70s um, uh, with, which, uh, you know, uh, the, the dad's armies and the rising damps and the on the buses and so on that has disappeared uh, mm. from from television and um they agreed with me uh and i don't know what's happened in television that those sort of programs either aren't being written or that they just don't get commissioned i don't know the answers to that from all i know from talking to producers and on particular comedy shows they're interested they're more interested, and this may be unfair to certain producers, so I apologise, but this is what I've heard from uh, quite a few programmes, that they are more interested in the one or two minute clips, because that is what makes the money, that is what gets the views, the one or two minute clips, rather than the programme as a whole. And I think that is just, as I say, the drip drip in terms of people's mental health, because it just means people are just going to be looking at phones rather than watching the whole thing. And I think it's, um, it's a real... It's a crisis that's going to hit us in the next 30 years. Well, you, you, can, you, can, you can look at the TV schedule and um, you will find that probably five out of seven nights does, has no comedy or even drama on. It, yeah. it, it's reality programmes or documentaries, and, and I say nothing wrong with those, but the, you know, the, the, the way that the BBC used to have an, a unit which was light entertainment and a comedy unit, had both of them. They were both separate departments. Both had mm. different heads. And I worked um, in, in, in ITV when uh, ITV was um, made up of many, many different companies. And all of them had a head of comedy. Johnny Hamp at, at Granada, this guy called Vernon Lawrence at, at Yorkshire Television, and they all lived in the region and they're all, you know, part. I mean, one of the problems I have with modern comedy, which I see on television, um, it's very media centred. It's about television. Um, mm. you, you know, that W1A or even Alan Partridge, great though it is, it's about the medium. And you, you get programmes like This Country, which is a documentary sort of feel to it that uh, and, the, and the office it's okay it's set in an office but it's still about making the program itself and I, I, personally i uh, um, would like to see more traditional and i say working class because I, that's the background i came from because mm. when i watched on the bosses i saw my family um mm. i recognized people on that program okay it was sexist and, and probably wouldn't stand up today but um where is the equivalent today of the communal experience when you're seeing yourself and your neighbors on television and being able to laugh at them at the same time and yeah. with them yeah well as we are as we are reminiscing 
about how how it. brilliant how brilliant the old days were compared to <laughs> which I like doing. I'm going to do that for the next 50 years, I think, just reminisce about how things everything was better back in my childhood. If we can talk about you, you starting off in comedy or starting off as a child, going back even further, because it is uh, it is so interesting to hear where people came from, particularly having kids myself and watching them doing various things. You know, you were talking about on Simon, I think on Simon Lipson's podcast, um, you know, you mentioned your childhood briefly, how at age kind of three, four, five, you were dressing up and how you had these voices in your head, which I found quite interesting that you weren't, you weren't in a family where you particularly were performing in front of the family all the time, but it was, it was all being internalized in your head as a child. Is that right? I've, I've no idea where all that came from. It's just, mm. you know, human beings create other human beings that that for some reason want to climb mountains you know they see mountains i'm going to climb it um or they see a lake i'm going to swim it or they see something broken and they're going to mend it Uh, for me it was um i want to perform this is you know but also i'm a great believer that um that that we should never stop playing you know that that we should never stop laughing but equally, we should never stop playing. And I think my neighbours sometimes think me a bit odd because this, I don't often talk about this, but I love pretending to be an aeroplane. And <laughs> I go out and I stretch my arms and I, I, I sort of do that. I just love, I don't know why, I've always loved pretending to be an aeroplane. And I'm 60 this year and I still do it. Um, and I think that that sense of fun and pretend <laughs> yeah. and making it up is, is, is all I did really was take it to an extreme or, 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 you know, creating all these different characters in my head and who they all were. And they all had uh, different personalities depending on how I wore the shawl, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Mm. I just think that's a natural, in a way, I think that's dressing up and being other people is just, and being an aeroplane is just a natural thing for human beings to do. And I, I think it's a shame when we stop doing it. Yeah, keeping hold of that childhood <laughs> way of being. You still, get so... it with, you still get it with audiences. I, I did the Rocky Horror Show. Uh, on stage um and you just saw it with the audiences dress it they you know the the big muscular rugby lads with their girlfriend were in the fishnets and they were loving it you know what i mean and you see this (laughs) on stag nights as well they you know give them permission to to be the opposite of who they are and they'll find in that opposite something about themselves that they really possibly secretly quite like um and uh, <laughs> without getting into the whole psychology of dressing up um, <laughs> oh it, no please do please do well it's it's, it's, the, it's the fact that i actually uh, in what you might foolishly call normal life i don't dress up you know i wear very simple clothes i, I don't have a um I, i'm not into buying clothes and stuff like that you know, my dressing up is on the stage rather than um, in life. Um, mm. I'm just rather, rather, you know, simple things in life. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever do you ever trace anything back to kind of those? Do you ever look back to when you were kind of four, five, six, and look back at your child and wonder? You know, maybe I'm doing this more now that I have kids. That you think these things that happen, you know, nature versus nurture. I mean, a lot of comedians have had unconventional 
you know, quote, con- you know, unconventional childhoods. We, like with mine, it was parents divorcing and various things going on, which maybe made me think I want to get some love out of people laughing. I associated laughing with love. Do you ever go back to your childhood and think about how you started? I'm pretty certain with all comedians, there is a, an emotional, uh, there was something emotionally missing. Yeah. Um, and actors as well. Uh, there is something emotionally missing and we, we want it in a different form. Um, and I, I once interviewed a, a, a psychiatrist and um, I said, it was about the nature of fame. And, and I said, does that mean to say that, that, that if you've got, you know, 20 million fans, that each of those fans is, is a surrogate mother and father? <laughs> and he said, yes. But for many people, 20 million is not enough. (laughs) (laughs) It will never be enough. Um, Oh, yeah. And I I, I think I've I've slightly lost that because, you know, I I was thinking about this because I knew I was talking to you today and I've been looking at my website and rewriting stuff. And and I thought, actually, you know, I've pretty much done what I wanted to do. I had some really fabulous evenings. There was one night I remember from, uh, from performing in Edinburgh um, and it just happened once where everything worked perfectly. Every <laughs> gag worked every, and, and I was just brilliant. And it only happened once. And I did a one man show in Buxton where every single line worked mm. and it only happened once. Um, but I've still got those in my head. You know what I mean? I've still, so I prefer to remember those as the time, as opposed to the time when I died on my ass every night in Great Yarmouth. I had stage fright for a while, uh, really bad stage fright because I was doing lots of corporate events and they could be difficult. They could be very good. And I was really having problems. And and I spoke to somebody about it and they said, well, what problems these, you know, how does it manifest itself? I said, well, I go into my attic, put Star Wars on very loudly and scream. She said, you do what? I said, well, I, you know, two or three days before I've got this event, I put the music on and I scream loudly so nobody knows that I'm screaming, you know, because I've got the Darth Vader music on. She said, I think you need to sort this out. You need to sort out this problem. And the reason, the way it was solved was I died so badly in Edinburgh at a corporate event where everything went wrong. And the only cheer I got was when I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm finishing now. And there was a huge cheer went up Mm. and I went back to my hotel and I just burst out laughing at the whole absurdity of it. And I never quite suffered from stage fright in the same way again. Um, I don't know what that tells you, um, but um, I I stopped worrying about it in the same way. there's nothing, it was one of those evenings you've had them. You, it was, everything went against you. The room yeah. was wrong. The audience was wrong. The intro was wrong. The acoustics were wrong. The microphone was wrong. Everything about it was wrong. I, I stood not a chance of winning them over. They were, they were all Scottish and they hated me as soon as I opened my mouth. Um, it, 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 but there was nothing I could do about it. Uh, and I just did my set. I did my 20, 30 minutes and then got to be upset and then laughed like crazy. When I came <laughs> well, I guess that was a release maybe because it is a release. We, we, I mean, we spend, we, it's a we, big, you know, that, that 
the rule of three in comedy is 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 about build it's partly about the nature of sequence uh, if you want to be technical you know establishing sequence but it's mm. also about um you know building the tension and i think for me psychologically that this has been growing for a long time this fear of performing um it hadn't stopped me but it made life difficult and um and I sort of came to the conclusion it probably didn't matter as much as I thought it did. Um, mm. And why was I worrying? And, and, and I, as I say, I just burst out laughing. And, and there was a huge, huge, huge release for me, I think. Yeah. But when you see how bad it can get and you realise, oh, I've survived that. It's, I was worried for yes. so long that it was you... going to be that bad. And it just has been that bad. And it's OK. I'll wake up yeah, tomorrow. And I'll... Exactly. And, and, and equally, don't get don't get so excited about the one gig where it really worked brilliantly well. Um, and when I, you, you know, I, when I work with people like Billy Connolly and people like that, and you, you see them go before they go on stage, you see them when they come off and they do great gigs and they come off and say, yeah, that was all right. You know, they, they, then they don't necessarily have that elation keeping going because that's where you can get into equal psychological problems, wanting to keep that high yeah. going. I've had a couple of sleepless nights after gigs. Um, I, when I returned to stand-up comedy at the comedy camp, I hadn't really performed for 20 years uh, in that environment. Uh, and it was electric and it was excited. And on the whole, it worked. And I didn't sleep that night because I was so excited. But those are, those are quite rare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you've, for me, it's an even, you know, don't get too upset about the bad nights. Don't get too pleased with yourself about the good ones. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I often talk about my own psychology. Just stay on a, stay on a level. Be dead inside to all, all emotion. That's the, uh, that's the key to a good psychology. Don't get too happy. Don't get too sad. You know, it's about surviving um, um, because I've seen, I'm not mentioning names, but I've seen comedians burn out. Mm. Um, winning the Perrier, um, um, one comedian won the Perrier, then I saw his show that he did in London, and there some critics in the audience, and he turned to them and said, you can't touch me now, um, because, you know, he, he was as, and the next year he came back to Edinburgh and got one star reviews for his shows, and mm. I haven't seen much of him since. It's, it, Mm. It, it it's a cruel world yeah but full of laughter as well <laughs> <laughs> it's cruel but full of laughter if you hunt it out if you go back to the 80s and look at some of the clips on youtube from the 80s you can still have a laugh you, you know l l true laughter really has to come from surprise but um all sorts of endorphins are released in your brain you know good good little natural drugs are given mm. to you through laughter as well as the, the the psychological bonding and the relaxation and all those sort of things you know that that, that, that they're all going on in your body the the, the drugs the muscles the, the human connection um it, it's vital yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So in, <laughs> in closing, I just wonder how you're going to fill that 60th year and the years to come. What's, what's on your mind now in terms of the direction you're going to take yourself? I'm moving away from performance. I want to write more and mm. uh, I have written 
scripts and books and stuff and people have read them said the characters are really very strong you're very good on character they're all mm. very clearly sort of delineated and i think that probably goes all full circle but that when i was a, a kid you know when i was six or seven dressing up in hats and coats and shawls creating characters they were all in my mind but i did have stories that went with them I, you know i created narratives and now after 60 years later nearly i'm writing those stories down so mm. um and i get a real thrill i get, i gave one of my stories to uh, a guy that works in waterstones and he said to me i laughed five times in your it's a short story he just i laughed five times out loud he said mm. i never laugh at things out loud when i'm reading and he said mm. your story gave me five laughs and that was a real thrill in a way that I've never experienced before. The idea mm. that I'm not performing, I'm not there, and yet I'm making somebody laugh. Um, mm. it's, a, it's, it's a weird feeling because it's, it's new to me because I've not really got a reputation as a writer, but that was great. I, I, I was completely thrilled by that yeah that's great yeah i love i love writing as well from that perspective yeah, yeah. not being in the room you sort of know that it's out there and and yeah somebody is is either throwing it at the cat or they're laughing at it or they're or, or they've never had that thought before and and you've mm. given it to them uh you don't know it it's a weird thing but but you know it's out there and you know that somebody is reading it it's, it's a lovely feeling mm. So are you breaking it to us that Th Thatcher has died once, of course? Uh, I think... Six, I, I, is Thatcher I, I dead cannot, again? I cannot <laughs> see myself ever dressing up as so again. Partly because I don't no. really like doing no. it. No. No. <laughs> I'm also... I don't look right. I mean, you know, that that Julian Anderson, she's the right age to play Mrs. Thatcher and the <laughs> Crown and all the rest of it. Did they not approach you for that? No. <laughs> Well, it would have been it would have been very funny um i mean she she you know i've performed in glasgow on a friday night so uh, she couldn't do that and i survived it um uh so that's one over I, i've got one over on her on that but um no I, I i i but also i've done it you know i did a couple of plays yeah. serious plays where i i was performing a stature uh, which is great because there was no laughs in it as such, you know, no comedy in it from that point of view. It was a serious play. Um, and I feel, that, oh, that's that's the box I've ticked. And I just don't want to dress up anymore um, as Thatcher. Uh, oh, the technical stuff, it just takes forever, you know, to put the makeup on and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. But I'm very happy. I'm very, very happy to do <laughs> the voice. We've waited a very long time and so have your listeners, but goodness me. Goodness me. Mr. Cassidy, we have got there in the end. Yes, we have. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see Lady Thatcher running around a park with your, with your arms out. Pretending to be an airplane. <laughs> I think that's one thing Mrs. Thatcher probably gave up on very early in life: was, uh, the ability to pretend. Probably still there to a degree, but um, no. Yeah. So I wonder what her sense of humour was. Do you ever get feedback from her and um, on her sense it's, of humour? I don't know what you think about this, but but. I, 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 she did have a sort of sense of humour. She liked mm. Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister because it, it was about a, a, a ministers and prime ministers who weren't as effective and as strong as her. So she was laughing at them. <laughs> um, she, she, there was one occasion, actually, uh, uh, um, I think it was a man called John Waddington, who was her private secretary, 
uh, who later became culture secretary. Anyway, the story was late at night in the summer and um, he came in, he was a bit upset and she said, John, what's wrong? He said, well, Prime Minister, you know, we've been watching the football um, and it's the World Cup and um, Germany have beaten us on penalties. And she said, well, you know, that's life, that's, that's football. And he said, yes, but, you know, the Germans, the Germans have beaten us at our national game. And she thought for a second and she said, yes, but we beat them twice at theirs. <laughs> well, forgive me for saying this, but that's not a bad line. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 racist and anti-german and all the rest of it but it's a it's a sharp line that's the only time i've ever heard anybody say that she said anything remotely witty or intelligent <laughs> we beat them twice at that <laughs> Oh, I miss her. You make me miss her. Um, <laughs> oh, don't, don't. <laughs> I think don't. she'd be brilliant in today. She'd be brilliant against Trump. You know, I just can't. Oh, well, it, it, it's, it, we've, we've, Spitting Image was lucky. We had Reagan, yeah. we had Gorbachev, we had Thatcher, you know, the big, big characters. Um, the, the comedy is, is, well, I don't know, uh, Trump was his own comedian in a way, wasn't he? <laughs> um, and so is Boris. And uh, it, but yeah. we, it's it's not a, it's not a happier world, and therefore we've got to, you know, keep on laughing. We do. What a beautiful way to close, Steve. <laughs> thank you so much. It's such a, such a oh such no, a I've thrill. enjoyed it. I love talking about thrill. laughter and comedy, and it, 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 it uh, lots of endorphins have gone off in my brain. So I'm, I'm 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 happy. And it'll put me on a high for the rest of the day. It's great. Oh, me too. Me too. I mean, God, I have so much love and affection for you from my childhood to today. <laughs> and it's, it's just uh, one of the great things about this show is meeting my comedy heroes. And here here I am. You're absolutely one of them. What you've done. For comedy up to this point and for you know for also students and your comedy lectures is absolutely incredible and i can't wait to see what the next chapter is maybe literally a literal career. yeah literally <laughs> literally in the in the great career of steve nallen thank you so much for joining me on psychomedy so that was our show for today join us again next week for more psychomedy on apple Podcasts, spotify uk or wherever you get your podcasts if you liked it please give us a five-star review it helps other people to find us and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English from Pop People Productions. Theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed in those video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. And if you'd like to support the podcast for £5 a month and get loads of bonus uncut video and more content, please go to patreon.com slash Cassidy. Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at Steve Nallen. Thank you again, Steve, so much. Lots of love to you and see you next week.